Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and let's turn together to John chapter 6. Um, John chapter 6. Um, today is, of course, a great day of celebration with Whitney and Christina and all of their family and friends that are here today. And we rejoice with them. And in a few moments, we'll have a precious time as we lay hands on him. And I, I tried my best to get Whitney to wear a bow tie today. And Christina encouraged, but he, he just wouldn't. He, he just wouldn't do it. Um, if you're a guest with us today, and of course we have many uh, family and friends of Whitney's that are here. We've been uh, walking through a series, really, that goes through the entire year. And it is entitled, Gospel Above All. And we've been asking a lot of questions because the word gospel uh, comes from an old English word, God spell, where God is good and spell means story. Uh, the gospel is the good story, right? It's the good news in the, uh, the New Testament Greek. It's the good news of God's love for us found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we've been talking about the importance of the gospel. If the gospel is above all, then what does that say about how we do church? And we have talked about the importance of beholding God in worship and belonging together in biblical community and being the church that Christ has called us to be across the street and across the globe. Now, last month, we spent the month Asking the question, if the gospel is above all, then how does it affect um, the way we do marriage, right? And how marriage is a reflection of the beauty of the gospel and that which awaits us um, as the bride of Christ. Now, over the next several weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be asking the question, if the gospel is above all, then how does that affect the way we see Jesus? How does that affect how we understand who Jesus Christ really is? And so to do so, we're going to be walking through some statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We're going to be examining the seven I am's in John where Jesus takes that four-letter Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the verb to be in Hebrew. It is the name of God who is the am that I am. And Jesus takes the I am and applies it to himself and he adds a metaphor to the end. All of the I am's of Jesus are his clear way of identifying himself as God. And so when someone says I am, right, it's very significant. When someone says, I am, it reveals something about their identity. It reveals something about the core of their being. It reveals something about what's most important to them. For example, when I say, or when you say, or when we say, I am a Christian, right? we are making a big, bold statement. We are declaring unequivocally our relationship, our commitment, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that our identity is in Christ. It's a big deal. It's important to us. 
And so when Jesus says, I am, right, we should pay close attention because Jesus is telling us something of profound significance. He is telling us something we don't want to miss. So today we're going to begin with his first I am statement where Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Now, just as a setting, when we come to John chapter 6, Jesus has begun his ministry. He is healing the sick. He is proclaiming good news. And multitudes of people are beginning to follow Jesus. And they're really asking the question. These crowds of people that are following Jesus are simply asking, is this really the one? Could this really be the long-awaited Messiah that we've been hoping for and that we've been praying for? So John tells us that Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 6, right, takes the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Luke tells us that Jesus takes them to a secluded place in the wilderness east of Bethsaida. So if you picture uh, the Sea of Galilee, picture northeast Galilee. And of course, when he takes them there, What follows is a miraculous meal of a large crowd of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. You know that story. You know that story very, very well. But what you may not remember is what happens immediately after this feeding of this multitude. The Bible tells us in John chapter 6 and verse 14, right? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then notice, perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus knows that the disciples are going to get sucked into all of this king hype. right? That the crowd of people, they're fed this miraculous large crowd with just a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread. And it really whips up the crowd into a frenzy. So they're ready to take Jesus. They're going to throw him on their shoulders. They're going to throw him up and down. And they're going to shout that he is the king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. They're going to march into Jerusalem. And they're going to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus knows all this. And he knows that his disciples are going to get sucked into it. And so he withdraws. And he takes the disciples and he sends them across the sea. He is sending them from northeast Galilee on on the top corner of the Sea of Galilee over to the city of Capernaum. And you know that story very well. Right, That the disciples are out in the sea. They've been rowing for about four miles And the sea is angry and rough and fierce. And Mark tells us actually that the storm actually matched the storm that was taking place in the hearts of the disciples themselves. 
Mark tells us in Mark 6 in verse 52 that they did not understand the loaves because their hearts were hardened. In other words, they watched this miracle after miracle after miracle take place in the hands of Jesus as the bread and the fish are broke. Just being cast out among all of these crowds of people. And they know he started with just a little bit. And every time they take a basket and they deliver it to a group of people and they come back, there's more. And they go and they come back and there's more. And the text tells us they didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. In other words, they knew that Jesus miraculously broke bread so hungry people could be satisfied. What they did not understand. It's the same thing that people don't understand today. That Jesus was the bread of life. Pastor John MacArthur in his commentary writes and he says they understood Jesus had power. They didn't understand Jesus was power. They knew that Jesus was from God. They didn't know that Jesus was God. So John tells us in John 6 beginning in verse 19. When they had rode about three or four miles they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. And he said to them, and note this, underline it in your Bibles. Jesus said to them, it is I. You see that? It is I. Do not be afraid. He said, it is I. That is, it is the Greek, I am. You see, church, Jesus is not walking on the water to show off. Jesus is walking on the water to let the disciples know He is God. And so He walks across the water. He stills the storm. Next thing you know, they're on the other side of the lake. The crowd that had been fed, right, the day before, the crowd had actually, through the night, rushed across the sea. And they get over to the other side. And they got over there. Looking for Jesus. All right? They didn't come seeking Jesus because of who he was. They came seeking Jesus because of what he did for them. I wonder if that's what a lot of worship is like today. I wonder if a lot of worship today is all about what Jesus can do for me and not necessarily who he is as the Lamb of God. And so the text tells us that Jesus goes into Capernaum and he goes into the temple. Now, if you take a trip to um, the Holy Land, you're going to visit Capernaum, you're going to spend some time in that little city. You're going to actually go, these are some pictures I took, they're not the best because I took them on my iPhone, um, and I took them on my iPhone 6, not, you know, uh, one of those fancy new iPhones, um, but this is a 4th century synagogue built on top of the original synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus was about to teach and make the statement that he makes that he is the bread of life. In fact, there are some 
archaeologists who will suggest to us that some parts of this floor may be the original floor of the original synagogue that was, was there. Right? So Jesus goes into the synagogue and they ask him, how did you get here? And what's interesting in the text is that Jesus doesn't even answer that question, right? He doesn't even address it. Instead, when they ask Jesus how he got there, this is what he says. You're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Right? So they, 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 they were fascinated by what they had seen. But they were actually blind to the reality of the person who was standing in their midst. And so Jesus tells them plainly about what they were looking for and about what he had really come to give them. The crowd was looking for just another meal from Jesus. And I mean, in their defense, let's, let's be honest, how many of us would probably do the same? If I were to stand here and say, hey, I just found out that Chick-fil-A is offering free number one combos throughout the month of March for the next 100 people that show up, there would be a mad rush out of the sanctuary. You'd jump in your cars, you'd fly up Church Street ignoring every stop sign, you'd pull into the parking lot before you even realized they're closed on Sundays. Right? That's what would happen. So I understand this. The crowd knew Jesus could feed them and they were hungry. But Jesus had come to offer much more than a free meal just to satisfy a temporary need. And so Jesus tells them that the feeding of the crowd just like the manna in the Old Testament in the wilderness was meant to point to something greater. Right? The manna in the wilderness, just like the bread and the loaves, was meant to open the eyes of the people there to something more significant than a full belly. He tells us in John 6, verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus tells them not to long for physical bread, even if that bread is provided by God himself. They should long for the bread that comes from heaven and gives life. And so look at the end of verse 34. What, what did they do? They said, sir, give us this bread. And notice that last word there, always, or in some translations, evermore. Right? In other words, that's their way of saying, sir, give us this bread every day. Every day, let's gather somewhere here around the Sea of Galilee. And every day, you give us bread and fish. And thus, Jesus declares to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never 
thirst. Church, Jesus came to satisfy an everlasting spiritual hunger. The bread of life is Jesus himself. It is a statement that he makes in verse 35. It is a statement that he makes in verse 48. It is a statement that he makes in verse 51. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. I am the only one that can satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. Right? We know from the Old Testament, we know from Ecclesiastes 3, we've talked about it many, many times. Right? God has put eternity in the heart of man. There is in the life of every single person a void in the heart that only Jesus Christ can fill. So let's kind of wrap this up with just a couple points of application. Let me, let me actually give you three points of application this morning. Number one, stuff never satisfies. Stuff never satisfies. The food that we eat is temporary. Right? We eat a meal, then we're hungry just again in a few hours. Why? Because satisfaction is one thing we rarely achieve. I mean, how many of us take a dream vacation? Right? Um, last year, Julie and I went to Yellowstone National Park, and what an incredible experience that it was to see the park and to see the land and to see the beauty and to enjoy the scenery and just kind of soak it all in, and we're on a plane flying home, and I'm immediately thinking about other places on my bucket list I want to go. And you're the same. Right? We take a dream vacation, whether it's filled with sun or food or fun or whatever the case might be, and before we arrive home, we're planning another. Why? Because we are rarely satisfied. When we're children, if I was only a teenager. When we're teenagers, if I could only get to college. If I'm a college student, if I could only get out and make some money. If I'm working, if I could only get married, if I'm a spouse, if I can only have kids, if only, if only, if only, if only. Contentment is a difficult virtue. Why? Because there is nothing in this world that can satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. In 2005, there was a 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady, quarterback of the New England Patriots. And in that interview, he was at the height of his career. And many of you will remember it. He had won three Super Bowls, two MVPs. He had a supermodel for a wife. He was a multimillionaire. So his story is basically rich, beautiful people winning Super Bowls, right? That's his story. That's his life. In the interview, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? 
I think there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't it, is it? This can't be all it's cracked up to be. So the journalist looked at him and said, Well, Tom, what's the answer? And Tom Brady, this three-time Super Bowl winner, this two-time MVP, this multimillionaire with a supermodel wife, and in the minds of just about everybody, right, this ideal situation, and when asked what's the answer to his question, Tom Brady says, and I quote, I wish I knew. I wish that I knew. Do you know why, dear ones, he said that? Because worldly possession and worldly stuff can never satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. Stuff never satisfies. Secondly, it's good to remember then as a result that the momentary can never equal the eternal. Right? Because we're, we're not Tom Brady. We're not Super Bowl champions. We're not athletes. Even though I'm married to a supermodel wife. Um, but the truth is, dear ones, there are many people who try to satisfy their hunger with momentary things, right? We do it all the time if we're honest. If I just had a little bit more money, if I just had a few more possessions, if I just had a nicer vehicle, if I just had more trophies, more achievements, we hunger for these things. We obsess over stuff. That never satisfies. And we think when we have achieved more, we will arrive. But yet every person who has always achieved more is still asking the question, what's next? Why? Because momentary never fills the void of the human heart. So it begs the question, what can meet the need? And simply, Jesus. Jesus is better than anyone or anything. Jesus wasn't just concerned about empty stomachs. Jesus was more concerned about empty hearts. He said that those who come to him will never hunger, and those who come to him will never thirst. By the way, why does he add thirst? (laughs) Because Jesus Christ is all satisfying. That's why. He doesn't just provide manna. He is manna. Jesus Christ is an eternal feast for the soul. And then if you go on and read in the Gospel of John 6, and I I would encourage you, it's an incredible chapter, I would encourage you to read it later. We're going to wrap it up. But Jesus goes on to tell them if they really want to follow him, if they, they have to believe that he is the true bread from heaven, and then Jesus actually talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In other words, he's talking about conversion, that you have to die to self and trust in him. And then you have to live in ongoing communion with him daily. That's Jesus' point in verses 41 through 65. And so I want to wrap up today by making two observations. First, for those here who may 
not yet be in a personal relationship with Christ. And maybe you're wondering if there really is anything redemptive in the gospel. We have two responses at the end of this text to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the bread of life, I'm the living bread. And we have two responses in the text. Response number one is in verse 66. Because the text says, after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You know what that means? That means there were many, many people who refused to see Jesus as God. They walked away. And let me ask you a question. What did Jesus do to them? I would suggest to us he did the exact same thing he does today when someone refuses to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. When someone refuses to turn from all known sin and place their personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they turn and walk away. What did Jesus do then and what does Jesus do now? Jesus let them go. He just let them go. Right? Jesus Christ loves all of us. He wants us to experience the joy of His grace. The peace that comes with knowing that His sacrifice at Calvary paid my sin debt. His victory over the grave is my victory over the grave. I take my sin, I lay it aside, I take on the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to change our lives. And I would simply say to you today, Jesus Christ desires to change your life. To give you peace. To satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. Right where you sit, right where you are, right now, if you will simply declare, Jesus Christ, I believe you are the bread of life. You're the Son of God. Forgive my sin. Cleanse my heart. And live in me forever. And the Bible says the Spirit of God will come and take up permanent residence in your life. And you will be changed right now, today. And I pray that that is your commitment. But dear one, please understand the text. If you decide to walk away, He will let you. Now there is also a word to those who are in Christ Jesus. When Peter... Jesus turned to the disciples when the crowds left. Jesus turned to the disciples and said, what about you guys? Man, are you going to leave as well? Are you going to walk away? And Do you remember what Peter declared? Lord, <laughs> to whom shall we go? You're the one that has the words of life. You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, if we really believed that the gospel is above all, if we really believe that Jesus is better than anyone, if we really believe that Jesus is better than anything, if we really believe that Jesus Christ alone can satisfy, listen, shouldn't that change our lives? 
Shouldn't it change the way we look? The way we act? If we really believe that Jesus is better, shouldn't sin lose its grip on us? Shouldn't our sinful attitudes be repulsive to us? Shouldn't our focus always be on Christ? Shouldn't our aim be to follow Him above all else? Shouldn't our attitudes reflect those of Jesus? Shouldn't our love for Him reflect in our love for one another? Shouldn't our goal be to please Jesus Christ in everything? If we believe that Jesus satisfied, we should never seek our identity apart from Him. He should be our greatest treasure. Can I just ask you today, church? Has Jesus Christ satisfied the deepest longing of your soul? Has He been faithful to meet your need? Has He been faithful to give you His peace? Has He been faithful to give you His hope? And hasn't He promised you eternal life with Him? If so, how is that affecting the way you live your life? If I verbally declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and it makes no difference in the way I live my life, something is seriously wrong. It's wrong. Are you satisfied with Jesus Christ today? I pray that you are. Will you bow with me please? Before we do our laying on of hands, let me just pray over our message today and ask you to let the Spirit of God speak into your life right now. Will you just ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you anything in your life that is not pleasing to Him? Any thought, any deed, any attitude. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, would you simply say, Lord Jesus? Help me in every way to reflect your mercy, your grace, your love to the world. And if you are without Christ, if you're not walking in relationship with Jesus, right now, right where you are, just give Him your life. Just confess your sin. He already knows it. So just confess your sin and invite Him to live in you forever. And I promise you, if you will make that the commitment of your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ will change you now and forever. Father, thank you today for reminding us that Jesus Christ, He didn't just come to satisfy some temporary 
hunger. He came to meet the greatest need of our life, and that is our deadness in sin, our depravity, wickedness that resides in every one of us. And I'm so thankful today for the loving kindness of my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful today, Father, for the hearts that are being changed this morning and the lives that are impacted by the power of the gospel. And I pray for every one of us as believers here this morning that our heart's desire would be to model Jesus in every way. At home, school, their jobs, Walmart, the grocery store, the gas station, the neighborhood, whether we're down the street or across the globe, may we always reflect Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for meeting our deepest need. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, Whitney, I wonder if you and Christina would come and sit right here in front of me for just one minute. Rick, would you do me a favor and get a chair and place it here in the front for us in a moment? I want to speak into your lives for just a moment and celebrate with, you know, all of your family and friends that are here with you guys today. I remember something that Brian Harbour, who... Um, was pastor of First Baptist Church of Richardson, Texas, several years ago. He tells that one Sunday, um, one of his staff members met a little girl, her name was Susan, walking down the hallway, and, and uh, one of the staff members looked to Susan and said, Susan, what'd you learn in Sunday school today? And Susan replied, we learned how to heal the sick and cast out deacons. <laughs> and uh, there might be some people who think that's a uh, maybe not a bad idea, but to me, Whitney, I, I, I will tell you that the deacons of our church are an incredible blessing to our church and some of my dearest friends, and I'm thankful to count you among that group today. It's an honor for me, and I, I just want to encourage you uh, this morning in Acts chapter 6, when there was a need that arose in the early church, and our church family is aware of this, that the apostles encouraged them to select a group of men that would meet this need so that they could focus on their preaching and teaching ministry and the ministry of prayer. And the Bible says in Acts 6 that they chose men who were full of faith, and full of the Holy Spirit. Then we can go to 1 Timothy 3 where Paul sets forth the qualifications not only of a deacon but also of a pastor. And when you look at 1 Timothy 3 church the emphasis is not on what we do. The emphasis really is on who we are. Right? It's a reminder to us that being is always more important than doing. Right, Who we are as men of God, who we are as husbands to our bride, who we are as fathers to our children, 
who we are as neighbors, who we are before God and man. Uh, Paul says at the, near the end of 1 Timothy 3, he says in verse 13, those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying with faithful service to his church, there are two rewards. One, deep respect from the family of God. I would suggest to you, Whitney, that you and Christine are seated here today because of this very reason. People have watched your life. Right? Your Bible study leader has seen your faithfulness. Right? You've been marked out. Why? As a man of faith. And a man who desires to love Jesus. And love his family and love his neighbor. And there is a, a, a deep amount of respect that comes from the, the family of God. Serving his church. And then he, he also says great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is that personal assurance that the Lord is pleased with us. You know, the joy that comes from, I, I like to put it this way, being a nobody that just tries to exalt to somebody. And that is that's what we are. Listen, I'm firmly convinced in my heart, church, that pastors and deacons were never meant by God to be celebrities. And they were never meant by God to be corporate CEOs. God has called us to shepherd the flock that he has entrusted.